This is Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. Let's read chapter 2. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embraced folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water pools of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also had more herds and more flocks and enemy in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I quite male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of the man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I died myself nothing. I, I, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took, del took delight in all my labour, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had taught to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. When I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom, and also madness and folly, what more can the king's successor do than what's been already done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, but the fools walk in darkness. But I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will also overtake me, they will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise, I said to myself. This too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise must die too. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had talked for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I pour my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toils and labour under the sun. For a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then he must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get through all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not, do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind.
Thanks very much, Rob. Um, and do keep that passage open in front of you. Um, my name is Josh, and uh, no matter what you thought about that passage, all the meaninglessness it seems to be describing, we are going to spend a bit of time looking at that. Um, so before we do that, uh, I'm going to pray for God's help as we look at his word. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that we would grow wise this morning in seeing the world through your eyes. We pray that we would know you and know ourselves. And so uh, we would turn and repent of putting too much on ourselves and that our life be ones who are constantly looking to your good hand. But we pray that the wisdom of this would really speak to us and turn us into people who actually do live wisely and right in the world that we've made. I pray to Jesus' name. If you want to have a copy of this in Farsi, there's some paper copies of this just at the side. And if you want a copy in English, there's a paper of it, there's one on available online um, at our website, which is ChristChurchLiverpool.org. And then you go forward slash transcript. There's an English copy of that. If you wanted to have that, you can follow on. Um, <coughs> well, we are two weeks into uh, the new year, and hopefully that's not too long for me to ask you to cast your mind back two weeks. Come with me to January the 1st, 2024. Uh, what were you doing on that day? Where did you ever do that thing? Uh, maybe it was New Year's Eve, or maybe it was New Year's Day. That thing where you look back over the last year, and you take stock, and you review, and you think, what are my highlights of 2023? Or the lowlights of 2023? Was it a good year? And did you look forward to 2024 and ask yourself, what am I hoping for in 2024? What's in store for me in 2024? We don't normally ask those questions, maybe at the turn of the year we do. But when you ask those questions, you start to have to figure out a few things that you don't normally uh, figure out. Because we have to start figuring out what we mean by what is a good year. What made 2023 good for you? if it was a good year? What made it bad for you if it was a bad year? What do you think makes a year good or bad? And looking forward, what exactly do you hope will you'll achieve in 2024 that will make it a good year? Do you want it to just be full of happiness? Or is it that you want to progress somewhere? You want to achieve something? You want to end 2024 in some way better off? But what does that mean, better off? What do you want to achieve? And the wider question behind all that is, well, what do we want to achieve in our lives? What makes a good life? Look back at your life. Has that been worthwhile so far? How do you judge that? Look forward to the rest of your life. What can you do that will be a good use of your time? How do you judge that? Well, if those are deep questions, a bit deep for a Sunday morning, we are looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, this term, the book that Rob read a passage from. And Ecclesiastes asks deep questions like that. So this morning we're not going to be allowed to dodge that question. How do you work out if your life is worthwhile, if your life is good? How do you plan for 2024 to plan something worthwhile? We're going to have to face those questions full on. Was 2023 actually a waste of time? Did I really do anything in 2023 that really lasted, that makes any difference? In the book of Ecclesiastes, 
Uh, it's written by the King of Israel. That's um, a line that, that Rob read um, just before chapter 2. In chapter 1 verse 12, it says he's the King of Israel. Um, and he sets out to answer exactly those questions. What should I be doing in life that will really make a mark? Or what should I be pursuing that will make it a good life? In chapter 2 verse 3, um, quite early on in today's passage, he says this line, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Perhaps you want to see what is good for you to do in the 352 days left in 2024. But to answer that question, he has to burst a few bubbles. And that's where our passage begins. He begins by bursting the bubble. And to work out what is worthwhile giving our lives to, the, the king, who is known in the book as the teacher, so I'll be calling him the teacher, because he's teaching us all the things he's learning. The teacher shows us his journey of discovery. And as we read it, I want you to think a little bit like um, the type of movie where someone goes on a journey of discovery. Uh, the, the type where maybe they, they leave behind the drudgery of everyday life. And to go and see what the world has to offer, see how uh, engaging with all the stuff the world has to offer can bring about some sort of inner meaning. I've never watched the film, but I've heard the phrase, eat, pray, love. I've never read the book, it's a book as well. Um, eat, pray, love. You've heard the phrase, and, it, and it, even if you've never seen the film or read the book, you, you might know that it's um, about that journey of saying, well, I can, I can go to one place and eat, and I can go somewhere else and try and connect spiritually, and go somewhere else, try and connect relationally. Let's find, let's take that journey. See where it takes us. Do we really like win at humanity if we can do those things? Well, that's what the teacher sets out to do. And we see the results in verses 1 to 11. And I find this really helpful to watch what he's doing. And I find it really relevant because the very things he goes for, the very things he tries, are the things that I think deep down are the things that I want to spend my life chasing. Because I deep down think these things will make my life worth it. He's going to look at pleasure productivity and prosperity. He starts verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. He goes after laughter, verse 2. He goes after wine. He, that's shorthand for a good time, a good night out. It's a life of fun. And he's living the highlights of your life, the bits that you really value, the evenings, the weekends, the holidays. Those are the bits of our lives, right, where our, our, our best memories are normally made. You don't have snaps like photographs, photo album of your days at work, but you do of your holidays. You have a photo on your wall of your night out with friends, a birthday party, a celebration. We look back, we really treasure these moments. Are these the moments that are valuable in life? Well, the teacher pursues pleasure, but he balances that on the other hand, not by having to work hard just to get to the weekend. His job is immensely productive. Looks like he's enjoying himself in verse 4. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards, I made gardens and parks, and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. That excites me. Creativity. Ambition. I mean, imagine you've done all that in 2023. Has it been a good year? Well, yeah. Look at all you've managed to achieve. You're halfway to, to leaving a legacy. 
And it really hits the heights because his productivity has turned a profit and he has grown an empire by verse 7 and 8. He's got a workforce. There's industry. There's prosperity. I would love to have followed him on that journey. I would have loved to have walked that road. More money than you can imagine. More opportunities. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be someone like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk with enough money to just say, I, I'm going to launch a rocket this week. I'm going to see if I can colonize the moon this week. I'm going to fill the world with driverless cars or pioneer drone deliveries. And in your spare time, you've got enough money for every single yacht in Monte Carlo if you wanted it. Have you imagined what life is like like that? Wouldn't that be good, fulfilling, fun? I don't know. Well, that's what the teacher does. But look at what the teacher says that's like. In verse 11. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Uh, when I'm at home, I like to play a game with my, my daughters where um, we're always getting like uh, tubes of bubbles where you blow them. And um, you blow the bubbles and the children run after them and try and pop them. But when I take the bubbles out, I blow them. Um, and especially they're really young and they don't quite know, they think you know, well they know you know more than them. And they, they see you do a little trick and I blow the bubbles and I, I grab it and put it in my pocket. And I grab it and I put it in my pocket. They're like, whoa, I didn't know you could do that. And I blow it, and then I grab it and put it in my pocket. And I'm chasing them. I'm grabbing all these bubbles in my pocket. Uh, they find that hilarious. Now that's the idea when we read the word meaningless there in verse 11. It's not saying that these things don't have meaning. Unfortunately, that's maybe an unpowerful translation. It's not saying the things that you do uh, don't have meaning. It means something more like smoke or vapor or grabbing the bubbles and trying to put them into your pocket. Yes, it's real. Yes, it looks good. You can actually, just like a bubble, you can look at it. It's there in the air. You can stop and admire it, but you just can't pin it down. You can't stop it, put it in a box. You can't contain it and save it up for tomorrow. Whatever its beauty, and it is a real beauty, just like a bubble, it's burst and gone before it's made any lasting impact. Now the teacher sounds really negative about his life achievements, calling them smoke, uh, vapor and smoke and bubbles. But here's the real deep wisdom of what he's doing in these verses. The teacher is only showing us what he sees when my children look in my pockets. It's not nice to show them my pocket is actually empty. That's a bit of a letdown of that whole game. When we thought we were storing up, getting hold of all these bubbles, catching them, saving them for later. It's just a bit of a disappointment when you realise that pocket is empty. But it's a truth that as a child you have to face up to. And it's a truth that as an adult we have to face up to. That a life, 2024, full of pleasure, productivity and prosperity is just a pocket full of bubbles. A pocket empty of bubbles. I can barely believe that's true. That's why I need the Bible to tell me. But here's why it's true. The last line of verse 11 says, Nothing is gained. It's a phrase he uses a lot in Ecclesiastes to say nothing is gained. And he's thinking of the attitude of someone who believes that their life and their efforts will be the thing that makes a permanent 
and substantial and widespread difference. From start to finish, there's a change, there's a difference. The things will be different after you've done this. And that difference will be meaningful and lasting. Uh, the problem, of course, with pleasure that he finds is, well, once his holiday is over, he's got to come back home. That's what you and I find when we try the nights out, the holidays, the time with friends. You come back home, and all of it is gone, like a bubble. And that's the problem with productivity. Every house you build eventually gets knocked down for someone to build a bigger one. Every, everything you fix will break again. Every patient you heal will get sick again. Yes, you can aim for productivity at work, but it is extremely frustrating because nothing changes from the beginning to the end. <clears throat> Over the uh, Christmas break, my wife Karen has been watching um, a film um, called The Weight of Gold, and it's about um, how elite athletes <coughs> with the psychological and mental side of um, competing for gold medals at the top of their sport. It um, looks into um, the life of Michael Phelps, who he's won 23 Olympic gold medals. 23 Olympic gold medals. That's, not, that's just the Olympics. Aside from that, he's won 65 gold medals in world championships. But he's won only 23 Olympic gold medals, he's gone for it once, and he's won it once, he's gone for it twice, he's gone for it 23 times, and won 23 times the gold medal. And even at the pinnacle of achievement, even breaking a world record, doing something that no human has ever done, so that you can make your mark in the world, there's such an obsession to achieve it, that these athletes can't really compute. When you have achieved it, tomorrow is just another day. What, what's left? It's the emptiness. When you've reached the pinnacle and made your mark on human society by swimming faster than anyone else, the next day is just the next day. And the documentary highlights how, how hard-hitting it is for athletes. Not when they lose, but when they win. Because when you win, it's finished. And then they say, thanks, you won a world record, now there's someone faster. There's someone stronger. These athletes who give their life to gain their bubble bursts and they are left open to anxiety, depression, and suicide. So if you think Ecclesiastes is overly negative, the teacher is bursting the bubble to spare you the life spent chasing the wind. The letdown of when you do actually achieve these things and realize that tomorrow is just another day. He's not saying that pleasure or productivity or achievement or wealth is pointless, and that's a key distinction. He, there is a point to it, and you can do it, but what he's saying is it's madness to build your life around it. It's madness to think that the value of your time in the next year is best spent on pleasure, productivity, or prosperity. It's madness to imagine that you should pour out what you have emotionally for these things or to let them become your obsession. It's madness to set your self-worth on how happy you are, because that's what makes your life worthwhile, or how productive, how successful you are, or how rich you are. That's just like leaning all your weight on a bubble, and it bursts. 
and people can't handle that. It's madness. I find that really helpful, personally, because I do find that I want to lead my weight on those bubbles. I want to, to put the value of my life on those evenings and weekends and holidays, the best bits. I want to put my value of life on productivity, getting stuff done, making a difference. It feels good. But the teacher says, those bubbles burst. But now the journey takes a new twist after verse 11, because now he considers, well, what even if I do get that right? What even if I do avoid all the stuff that's going to waste my time, the bubbles that burst? What even if I do spend 2024 living the most wise and godly and right life? What if we even get it right? And verses 12 to 23, the teacher says that even the wise life it's just delaying the inevitable. Even the wise life is just delaying the inevitable. I quite like using the phrase, um, oh well that's just uh, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Don't worry if you can't see the cartoon now, but that's not the point. Um, the phrase, well that's just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Some of you know what that means. Um, some of you perhaps have never heard of it, you can probably start to put together what you think it means. Um, and if your English isn't your first language, this is a good idiom to learn. If you've been learning English, often you learn idioms. So this is all about idioms. Um, and if it still makes no sense to you, it means um, that there's a big issue, and you might take action, but your action doesn't actually solve the big issue. It's like a ship is sinking, and the plan that you have to intervene is to rearrange the deck chairs. I wonder if the teacher of Ecclesiastes would have used this phrase if he was writing now. Because in his wisdom, he's burst all those bubbles of things we've got in our lives on. But then he begins to wonder whether all of that is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Is the good life that maybe we can now achieve because we're not, we're not going to waste it? But is that even worth it at all? He says, I saw that wisdom is better than folly. Yes. Just as life is better than darkness. Light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in darkness. Yes, but I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. That lens of death puts a new perspective on everything. When you're dead, does it really matter whether you lived wisely or not? As he puts it, what do I gain by being wise? This too is meaningless. Well, he's right, isn't he? die. But he's right particularly about the gain part. See that word again? You don't actually gain. Even in the wise and godly and kind and charitable life, the mark you make on the history of humanity is hardly noticeable. Just as things were before you were born, so they're going to be after you are born. Whatever mark you make on people who know you, well, when they've passed on, your mark will be erased from the world. From start of your life to the end of your life, do you add value? Does, is there progress? He concludes that the wise life is just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Now, that's hard for us to hear. There are hundreds of voices on your podcasts or TV programs or university courses or training events, inspirational movies and best-selling novels. Hundreds of voices that tell you, actually, you can make a difference with your life. You are here for a purpose. 
You can maximise what you do, and so it does sound to our ears quite morose and morbid to say that, well, because death is a reality, then your life is a vapour, a smoke. But he says this to spare us again. Because if you do really, really want to find gain in your lifetime, through everything you've done, and think that when you die, that will be a life well lived, well, he, look at his reaction, verse 17, I hated life. I hated the things I toiled for, verse 18. But verse 20, my heart began to despair of all my toilsome labour under the sun. Precisely. That's what you get if gain is your goal. If you have poured out your life studying with early mornings, late nights, job applications, you've got the promotion, or you invest in those friendships, or you're, you're self-giving, you're giving yourself, even if you serve at church every single week, if all of that is so that you can say you've added value, so that you can say there is gain, there is something more that I've got right through doing this, I've achieved it, I have given my life and done something, well, I'm afraid death topples your view of significance, like a house of cards. If gain is the goal, I'm afraid death is the end, and death has last word. He says all their days, their work is brief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. But then he shifts. His conclusion then isn't, it is to say, well, that's meaningless if gain is the goal and death is the end. But he now makes a shift into verse 24, where he's no longer chasing gain. He's learned the emptiness of pleasure, productivity, and prosperity. That doesn't bring gain. And he's learned the insignificance of a toil of a lifetime. That doesn't bring gain. And he's now thinking, well, what if gain is not what we're here for? And from verse 24, he encourages to swap chasing the wind for enjoying the sunset. I'm uh, reading with my um, children at the moment about the line which and the wardrobe. Um, some of you know that well. If you don't know it, it used to be quite a famous book. But it's a children's book by a Christian author. And it's about four children who go into a different world. And in the world, there's an evil power called the White Witch. And there's a good ruler, a lion, called Aslan. Now, the four children, something has happened to a character um, who's kind of become a friend of theirs. And they're new into the world, these four children. And their immediate um, reaction to something happening, the White Witch has taken their friend, is to say, we well, need to save him. And so there's a, a couple of pages in the book where the children are, are wondering where to go to try and save him. And they meet two beavers, talking beavers, that's the kind of book it is. Um, and they, 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 they're concerned with the beavers is to say, how can we save him? Where is he? What should we do now? And the beavers are wise, because they say to the children, you can't save him. Only Aslan can save him. I love that moment because there's a shift to the children. They were new to the world. They didn't know how it worked. They were naive. And they have to realize now their role in the story. They have to realize that it's not going to be a story about how much they achieve their game. It's going to be a story to tell them that how much they're dependent on Aslan. And he's a picture, he's a Christian writer there, Aslan's a picture of Jesus. And Ecclesiastes is a story that tells us how little we are going to make a change. But this story is about how much we are going to have to depend on someone else. 
Ecclesiastes teaches us about our smallness and our vacantness. To teach us that we are like naive children, wandering in a dangerous world of spirits and magical beasts and white witches and powers of evil. And you know what? We misread the script if we think we are the ones who are going to make the big difference. That's what Ecclesiastes wants us to know. And so verses 24 to 26 lift off us that burden that we could never carry. We won't save the world. We won't achieve gain in our lives. Verses 24 to 26 put us in our place as creatures under God. And he says then that well, there is enjoyment and pleasure and satisfaction to be found when we give up placing the ultimate value of our life and our work in the idea of gain and achieving, and us being the ones who do it, the, the value, the enjoyment now is when we hand that over to God. And we simply enjoy life as a gift from Him. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? He's not saying eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow we die, as if that's all there is. He's saying eat, drink, and enjoy, because that's what there is that God has given you to be able to do. And he's never been saying, if you've noticed throughout this whole passage, he's never saying don't toil, or don't work hard, or don't be wise, because these things are better than idleness or foolishness. It's still good to do. It's not like there's no point. But his conclusion is that you're thinking above your station. If you imagine that that work and that wisdom will actually achieve more than it can, you are not God. That is why you work and be wise, not why you give up being work and be, uh, work and be wise. But if you work and are wise, thinking you are God. Well, that's when the despair comes in. The teachers had to burst those walls to remind us of our mortality, to stop us from taking the good things that God has given us and turning them into a ladder to reach where we're not meant to go and then to plunge into despair when we realise the vagueness of life means we can't get there. That would be a cruel God who tells us to do that in life. Instead, we get to honour God in the vagueness of life by accepting life and work and toil and achievement and pleasure and food and drink. Yes, do them, but accept them as a gift from a generous and kind God. I love this little parable that, um, that shows the shift in thinking. There's a businessman um, standing at the end of a pier in a small coastal Mexican village one day, and one little came up and docked at the pier, and a man came out with a catch of fish. Just one man on his own, he had a catch of fish. And the businessman said, oh, well, then you've got a decent catch of fish there. How long did it take you? And the fisherman says, oh, I, I've not long, one or two hours. And uh, the businessman said, well, if it took you so short, why didn't you stay out longer? You know, there's still quite a few hours of fishing left. Why didn't you stay out longer? Collect more fish. And the, the fisherman said, well, I've got what I need. I'm just going to go to the market, sell them, and I've got enough um, the next two or three days. But the businessman said, well, if you only spend like two hours fishing, then what do you do the rest of the time? And the fisherman said, well, I sleep late. I fish a little. I play with my children. 
take a siesta with my wife, stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine and play guitar with my friends and enjoy the sunset. And the businessman said, well, I'm a qualified for business, I'm very rich, I know how business works, I can help you out here. I can help you out because if you were to spend a couple of hours extra each day fishing, you'd earn more money to then maybe you could buy a bigger boat and employ somebody. Uh, and then, if you've got a bigger boat and somebody employed, you'd go and catch loads more fish. You'd earn loads more money. And you could have a whole fleet of boats. And then, instead of having to sell it in the market, you could open your own uh, fish shop. You could process it. You could own the, the cannery. Uh, by then, you could be owning the biggest business in this little village, and you could move to the big city. There, you'd be able to um, expand your business and be the owner of a massively prosperous empire. And the fisherman said, yeah, but how long is that going to take? And the businessman said, well, 15 or 20 years, I can get you there. And the fisherman said, well, what happens then? The businessman said, well, that's the great bit. You can sell it. Sell business and you'll earn millions. And the fisherman said, okay, then what do I do with that? And he said, well, then you can retire. Move to a small coastal village where you sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take siesta with your wife, stroll to village in the evenings. Sip wine, play guitar with your friends, and enjoy the sunset. See, one wants to gain, and one wants to accept good gifts as gifts from God. Because life's value isn't what we make of it. But it's the fact that God has given us life as a gift. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes spares us the disappointment of when we set our hope and our identity in the idea of gaining, getting somewhere. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes frees us to enjoy the sunset, to enjoy whatever gifts God has given us. And you know, while you're doing that, that's not delaying the inevitable. Because in the face of death, well, we could be despairing that our lives are of scope. But if we live as God's creatures, under God's, uh, under God's good provision, and we see what he gives us as gifts from his hand, well, he, we find that God's gift is life. The death can't take away. As we are creatures under God, we look at what He's done to gain. And we see that He sent His Son. And He also faced the same fate as all of us. He ended up dead, just like the fool. And yet, God's gain is that He didn't give death the last word. Jesus rose from the dead. He rose to a life that isn't a bubble that will be burst, destined to burst under the sun. He rose to a life that's eternal and full and satisfying, that enjoys the pleasures of God. And Jesus invites us into that life, a life not marked not by inevitable death, but by inevitable resurrection. Jesus' life and death and resurrection paves the way for us as humans to live under God without death. In an eternity, not a frustrated toil, but to live one day in eternity depending on God's good hand, seeing his gifts, understanding, enjoying his gifts. He invites us into a life that depends on him, that will never be ruined by death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this warning that sounds quite jarring to our ears about how small we are and passing. We thank you because we don't want to 
imagine ourselves greater than we are, and waste our lives chasing after what is just a wind and a vapor. So Father, thank you for the sombering truth, the sombering wisdom of this teacher. But thank you more than that, the answer is in despair, that the answer is to set our eyes on what you have done. Thank you that in our smallness you are great. In our emptiness you are full. And thank you that you are a good God who hasn't burdened us, but who lifts our burdens and gives. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus. That our hope in him is that we receive and receive and we know your goodness in a life unspoiled by death.